think it's just so the oh that's very nice and easy to see yes and I'll just have a quick drink now. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you very much for coming out tonight. Uh, welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons and to the third of our Sex and Scandal in the 18th Century evening events uh, arranged by the Hunterian Museum. Uh, today I'm very pleased to present uh, Lydia Sison. She is a writer, a former BBC World Service producer, and now she's the author of her first book, The Doctor of Love, the surprising story of Dr. James Graham, who is a contemporary of our John Hunter, but of a very difficult, me different medical nature. So without more ado, I'd like to pass you over to Lydia. Thank you. I'm going to take you back to 1783 and introduce you to James Graham, who was at the peak of his fame and notoriety this year. There really couldn't have been a newspaper reader in Britain who hadn't heard of him. And here he is at his Temple of Health, delivering his famous lecture on generation, an extraordinarily breathtakingly frank explanation of reproduction, how to have perfect babies. And in the course of this lecture, Graham used to imagine a rather unusual scenario. He used to, he used to picture an angel arrayed in celestial glory, descending from heaven and telling him that he would die that night. He was allowed to leave one single useful piece of advice to improve the lot of mankind. Now, Graham was a man with very big ideas. He really genuinely, genuinely thought he could change the world. And once he'd reformed medicine, he, he was already planning to move on to the legal system, the clergy, even punctuation came under his scrutiny. But on this subject, he was, he was completely definite. There was, there was one thing, one sure route to what he described as bodily and intellectual brilliancy. And that was cold water washing of the genitals. <laughs> it had to be done morning and evening and always, always after sex. And this way, he was sure that certain parts which next morning, after laborious night, would be relaxed, lank and pendulous like the two eyes of a dead sheep dangling in a wet, empty calf's bladder. By the frequent and judicious use of the icy cold water would be like a couple of steel balls of a pound apiece enclosed in a firm purse of uncut Manchester velvet. <laughs> Graham was absolutely passionate about good sex, as you'll probably have gathered. He thought that semen was, was the life force within. He, he really regarded it as, as essential to, to life as oxygen, which had incidentally recently been discovered. Um, he wrote, I ought to have called it the breath of beauty, condensed light, the life of the body, the soul of the soul, the magnet of love, the essence of ages, the liquor of life, and the true pabulum or food of all pleasure. He was a man rather given to hyperbole. Um, Graham thought that the creation of life itself, conception, was, was so momentous that it was best accompanied by, by truly momentous sensations. And he was convinced that the convulsive and ecstatic spasm, as he described it, that temporary dissolution, ejection, or going out of all the faculties of body and of soul, in other words, sublime orgasm, was essential to conception. It was the means employed by nature to animate the germ or embryo. Now, who, you might wonder, was listening to this extraordinarily frank advice? I'm going to tell you a few. Um, his, his audiences were 
actually fairly respectable, generally rather Whiggish, as suited um, Graham's politics. And um, unfortunately, only th three of these have been identified, although it's thought that they're all portraits. So if there are any 18th century aficionados in the audience who spot somebody they recognise, I always, always want to know afterwards. Um, here's John Wilkes, who was... Um, uh, that rather hideous um, defender of, of liberty and also libertarianism, um, who um, this, this portrait by Zoffany was said by, by Horace Walpole to be horridly like, and, and Wilkes always said he could talk away his face in half an hour. And Wilkes actually got to know Graham in his um, pre-Temple of Health days when he was practising as a, as a doctor in bath and he had just got his first celebrity patient who I'm afraid not many people have heard of today but was incomparably famous in her day, Catherine Macaulay, the historian. And at the age of 46, Catherine Macaulay eloped with James Graham's much younger brother, um, William, a surgeon's mate who was 21 and, and this really established forever Graham's reputation as a, as a sexual reju rejuvenator. Um, then there's Charles James Fox, um, another radical, even, even more famous, um, known as the Eyebrow, for fairly obvious reasons. Um, also, the Man of the People, he'd just been designated. Um, you, might, um, you might know him from... He, he had a cameo appearance in the film The Duchess last year. Um, and um, he's, um, he attended the opening of the Second Temple of Hymen. I'll go on to the difference between them later on. Um, and he's eyeing up um, Mary Robinson, who was his lover the previous year. And um, Mary Robinson was always known as Perdita because she had shot to fame as a young actress when um, the young Prince of Wales had spotted her in a performance of The Winter's Tale and started a, a huge love affair, which, which quickly came to an end. And, and she was one of the leaders of fashion. She was, there was a sort of host of a um, little group of, um, of courtesans like her who, who, who were terribly fashionable, who competed... Um, with leaders of the bon, the bon ton, like Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, who, who incidentally was, a, was briefly a patient of um, James Graham, but um, he recommended icy champagne rather than cold water for her um, ablutions. Um, when um, Mary Robinson later became a, a well-known novelist and poet, um, but she waited until Graham died, until immortalising him in print by caricaturing him in a novel called Walsingham as, as a really horrible character, actually. I, I think it's deeply unfair. Um, the, the very aspirational and misogynistic Dr. Pimpernel. But one thing I do rather like that he said, that Dr. Pimpernel says in, in the book um, is he describes himself as the phoenix of physic. And I think it's terribly appropriate for Graham because he had an extraordinary capacity to reinvent himself throughout his career. Um, we'll just look at him a little bit more closely because he looks terribly respectable, doesn't he? he was, this was a time when he was referred to in the press and in poems and so on as England's demigod, the prime minister of life and love, the great prince of electrical joys, the electrical doctor, um, but also as the prince of puffs and the emperor of quacks because he trod this very fine line. Of, he, he balanced on a real tightrope between the ridiculous and the sublime. And I think it's rather summed up by this picture, which, as I say, looks all terribly respectable until you see the position that he's holding his lecture scroll in. <laughs> and if you're thinking that I'm over-interpreting, perhaps, I'll um, refer you to a, another lecture. Another um, He gave a few years later in Edinburgh to a, 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 an all-male audience where um, you'll see the same thing. And in case you're still in doubt, um, <laughs> the Battle of the Quacks. 
here Graham's confronting his chief rival in, in the field of entrepreneurial medicine, a, um, a, a rather lively Prussian called Dr. Catafelto, who was very famous for his cries of wonders, 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 and his necromantic black cats, and um, boasted a, a huge array of different, different specialties. Um, and um, they're, they're in a sort of electrical duel, which echoes the newspaper duels they used to have on the front pages that, of that summer of 82, 1782. They're huge newspaper columns, the advertisements of Graham and Catafelto sort of faced each other off, and, um, and, and they, they really were in, in, in battle. But it's rather a good picture to give some of the background to Graham and explain what kind of a person he is. Up in the top, you'll see um, all the paraphernalia of the provincial apothecary that he once was. He had started his career after training in, a brief training in medicine at Edinburgh um, in, in Yorkshire. And the alligator, you know, recalls a sort of Shakespearean apothecary, culling of simples and so on, as does the pestle and mortar. The monkey, of course, suggests something of a charlatan, which is echoed by the duck, quack, quack, quack. He's quacking in a Scottish accent, hence the thistle. Um, and there, um, in their huge laced Kevin Hula hats, are Gog and Magog, who were effectively the bouncers of the Temple of Health. Um, and it was, in fact, the song that I had up at the beginning for you to, to look at was, um, was sung by an actor dressed up as, as, um, as one of as Gog and Gog. I don't know if it was Gog or Magog, actually, or if there were two actors, come to think of it. But at the Sadler's Wells um, around this time as well. Um, the whole show is taking place on, on a giant EO table, which was a, a gambling table. EO tables were springing up in London at this time, like sort of crap games in Nathan Detroit's New York, and the magistrates were on a you know, desperate hunt to, 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 to seek them out and, and break them up. And, and there was a very public incident um, when somebody was seriously injured the summer before, uh, when Graham had actually rented out his Temple of Health to somebody with even worse reputation than he had. Um, and, uh, but, it, but it also, of course, implies that going to consult a doctor like James Graham was something of a gamble in itself, I think. Um, the celestial music refers to a number of things, um, not least the musical therapy that Graham promoted um, at his Temple of Health. The glass harmonica music you um, heard as, as you came in was sort of typical of the kind of music he used. The, the glass harmonica was an instrument invented by Benjamin Franklin, and those sort of otherworldly tones were very much associated with the, with the Temple of Health. Um, but you'll, you'll notice that, oh, he's saying to, he's saying to Catafelto, um, well, he's spouting a little bit of promotional material for his lecture and, and saying then, um, away, thou German maggot killer, thy fame is not to be compared with mine. Um, and in fact, um, the Catafelto had shot to fame because he had done very well out of a flu epidemic, um, which is sort of feels vaguely topical now. Um, but, but you'll see that what dominates the two stages is actually the electrical equipment. Um, those are Leiden jars, which is how electricity was stored in the 18th century, because it was, of course, before the invention of current electricity. Um, the, the celestial music, the cannon was fired with... Um, no, that's not to do with electricity. I won't talk about that now, sorry. There are, um, there's a thunder house there. Um, this is an electrical generating machine. And what Graham is riding on is actually a gigantic prime conductor, which is inscribed largest in the world, which was the boast he actually regularly made of his apparatus, his electrical apparatus. Um, 
Electricity was by far the most thrilling of, of all the new sciences of the Enlightenment. It was, it was described as an entertainment for angels rather than men in a textbook on the subject for the young. And, um, and demonstrators had for some, for some decades before Graham been taking tricks around like this rather wonderful one called the, the Electric Kiss where um, a female guinea pig from the audience was um, insulated, um, electrified, and then repelled suitors with her electrically charged lips. But there were other delights, like showers of fire that were created, spirit set alight, luminous bodies, that kind of thing. Um, huge, extraordinary pieces of apparatus that, that, that seemed really quite magical. Um, this, this, was, this was the kind of um, thing that Graham would have had in his temple by then, um, although his were much bigger course. Thun the Thunderhouse demonstration showed how important lightning conductors were. Um, there was some gunpowder inside, an electric spark would be applied to the um, lightning conductor at the top, and if, if the lightning conductor was disconnected, then the whole thing exploded rather beautifully. Medical electricity, though, it's important to realize, was, was not actually cranky in itself. It was, it was becoming... Quite, quite respectable. Most, um, most hospitals and um, dispensaries based an electrical machine by this time. Um, and um, it, it was something of a method of last resort. But I think it was a lot of people actually found it um, a huge relief. It was much more genial, as Graham put it, than the conventional medical um, standbys of the 18th century, which were not terribly effective and were extremely unpleasant, like bleeding, purging, blistering, and so on. So you can imagine that sitting down and being bathed in an electrical atmosphere, as you were in a treatment called the electrical bath, or even having um, the electricity, the, 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 the virtue, as it was called, pass through an, an, you know, the affected limb, like paralysis or so on, was, you know, was really quite, quite a nice treatment. Um, and it certainly didn't do any harm, or very rarely did anyway. Um, but most doctors were really interested in this kind of small, portable, tabletop um, apparatus. It was, it was machinery that could easily be transported from one patient to another. I mean, one of the, one of the groups that was interested, particularly interested in electricity was a, uh, a newly formed humanitarian life-saving um, organization that, um, that was, was interested in the resuscitatory possibilities of electricity, for example. Um, Graham was, Graham was interesting because he really took the lead from natural philosophers rather than other medics in, in, in being interested in what happened when you scaled the whole apparatus up, what happened when electrical apparatus became absolutely enormous. Now, we've already seen that satirists found the phallic shapes of electrical apparatus completely irresistible. Um, novelists as well just loved all the new terminology, fluids, friction shocks, human fibers standing on end. You can see his hair standing on there, and I'm not quite sure what it is on his shoulder, to be absolutely honest. Um, and, um, and, of course, electricity was a wonderful new metaphor for sexual attraction. But Graham took this all completely literally. He, he was utterly convinced that, as he put it, the venereal act itself, at all times and under every circumstances, is in fact no other than an electrical operation. It all seemed to make every sense to him. Those heart-piercing and irresistible glances which shoot at critical times from soul to soul were no other than electrical strokes or emanations. And just as electricians had to charge up their capacitors, 
so the animal electrical tube or cylinder needed to be excited for the accumulation or mustering up of the balmy fire of life. Then follows the discharging or passage of that balmy luminous active principle from the plus male to the minus female. These are all mere, plain, demonstrable electrical processes, according to Graham. And in fact, in his, in his mind, the, the leather pad that the glass cylinders would um, rotate against to create the friction that, that created the electricity becomes a rather grotesque image of female genitals. And, and Graham, as Graham put it, just as machines work more effectively, electrical machines work more effectively when pristine, um, so he thought did women, I'm afraid. And so what he promised that the electrical fire would do was to, was to refresh and make, make young again um, the female organs. But all these ideas were actually rather in the background when he opened his first temple of health. Um, it was at the Adelphi on the river. Um, well, this, it's, just, um, it's just part of the development where the um, Royal Society of Arts still is, just opposite the Festival Hall, really. Um, and the first Temple of Health was, was actually the epitome of Georgian values. It was, it was a place of pleasurable instruction, rather like the Hunterian, you could say. Um, and, and Graham presented himself as its polite and eccentric proprietor. He described himself as a son of science and the healing art. And in a puff in the newspaper, The Morning Chronicle, um, he, he, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure he wrote, um, this magnificent mansion was to all intents and purposes an attic school where wit and repartee and tender pleasantries sparkle and seem concentrated as rays of light in the focus of a burning glass. So he was clearly appealing to, a, you know, to an educated, fashionable audience because natural philosophy as science was known at that, that time was incredibly fashionable. Um, and the place itself, he couldn't have chosen a better ven van venue. Um, it, was a, it was a place that painters and draftsmen took as their subject, even before it had been finished building. And it opened in London amid fanfare and, and scandal, rising up on the Thames, these newly embanked embankment of the, of the Thames, like a, a sort of private palace with water towers and fire escapes and bathrooms, obviously terribly important for Graham. Um, here it is with them um, a little bit later um, in colour, showing Nelson's funeral procession past it. Um, and um, this is a design um, by the Adam brothers. It was the, the, the whole development was a, was a um, speculative development by the Adam brothers. And um, this is actually a, um, a design that's across the square in the Stone Museum um, for David Garrick's ceiling. And David Garrick, who was the most prestigious of, of the tenants at the Adelphi, had one of the two centre houses. Um, Graham himself had, had took over what had effectively been the Adam Brothers' show home. So you can imagine a place that was equally magnificent, you know, somewhere that was really designed to show off. And, and Graham took every advantage of this. So what you have to imagine at the Temple of Health, and I'm afraid you have to imagine it because um, there are, there are, there's only um, written descriptions. There's the, there, there, are no, um, there are no visual images of the Temple of Health left to us, sadly. Um, but it was, it was really like a kind of enchanter's palace. It was, it was exotic perfumes and, and, and strange distant music seemed to seep into all the rooms as, as though without source. And, um, and the apparatus he used, as well as being gigantic, was, was, was incredibly beautiful because he, he was brilliant at, um, at really exploiting the aesthetics of, of developing glass technology and so on, um, to, to the extent that there's really nothing, there was nothing really equivalent um, 
you know, for, for a few years. And probably the best idea I can give you of, of the sort of scale and, and effect of it is, um, is from 19th century British-made glass furnishings that were terribly popular for a while um, in India, um, spurring from the, 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 the glass fountain that was the main meeting place at Crystal Palace in the Great Exhibition. And um, so here, here are some other images. That the, again, obviously, the style, the, um, the period is, is wrong, but it gives you a, a sense of the scale of, um, of these kind of things and, and what, it would, what a glass throne would have been like. Um, Graham had a, he had a glass trap door um, in his consulting room and he, could, he dropped his prescriptions down to the laboratories below and his apothecary would pop up through a trap door with whatever he had ordered. Um, so you can see he was a, he was a man who was, who was fond of drama but, but also just brilliant at creating true enlightenment glamour. Um, and, but there was nothing... I, I don't want you to get the idea there was anything superficial about it. He actually... Before he opened the Temple of Health, he, he did a little grand tour of Europe, and he consulted Europe's leading instrument makers. So men like John Cuthbertson, who was an Englishman working in Amsterdam, who went on to build this. It's, it still actually exists. It's still, it's still there. Um, this gigantic um, electrical <coughs> apparatus um, it, for a philosopher called Martinus van Marum that was um, able to produce sparks 24 inches long, um, which was absolutely incredible in its day. Um, and he was also a great recycler. Um, so he, he, for example, acquired the generating machine from this demonstration that took place in, in the Pantheon, um, where there was an extraordinarily heated argument about, um, between Benjamin Franklin and various members of the Royal Society, and, and mostly Benjamin Wilson, who was a portrait painter as well as a, a natural philosopher. And, and, and the whole argument was whether, about whether round-ended or pointy-ended lightning conductors were more effective. So Benjamin Wilson put on this huge display in front of the king and so on, and um, was rather laughed out of town, in fact. But it's also interesting because the, the print here is, um, was done by Michelangelo Rooker, who um, went on to become the scenery designer um, for a show, a pantomimical extravaganza um, that was on at the Theatre Royal Haymarket called The Genius of Nonsense, which was incredibly successful because it recreated Graham's Temple of Health on stage. Um, and it meant that people could go, go along to the theatre and sort of not feel that they were being taken in by a charlatan, but enjoy all the fun and, and spectacle of the actual temple. And everybody was, said it was incredibly convincing. Well, they obviously didn't do the same things. Um, but, of course, the key attraction at the Temple of Health were Graham's goddesses of health. These were epitomes of female beauty who, um, who sang arias to oxygen. And um, the most famous of these were, was Emma Hart, who later became Lady Hamilton, of course. Um, although I think she was probably a rather brief employee of Graham. She, she's the one that, um, who, whose name has stuck with with him, and, um, and I think it's probably fair to say that the attitudes that she became terribly famous for when she then married the ambassador um, diplomat, William Hamilton, um, were probably first learned at the Temple of Health, um, as, where she was effectively produced by, by James Graham in, in her performances. And, um, and I think Thomas Rowlandson thought so too, because um, this image of the opening of 
the Royal Academy at Somerset House, um, which is a, it's called the Exhibition Staircase. I don't know if you can read it, S-T-A-R-E. Um, and um, the Royal Academy opened um, in Somerset House just along the riverbank um, in 1780, the same year as the Temple of Health. And I think that Venus in the niche there is a, is a, is a fairly clear reference to um, Emma's antics with Dr. Graham just along the riverbank. Now, things were actually going so well that Graham decided to expand, and he took out a lease on um, the centre apartment of Schomburg House in Pall Mall, planning to open a temple of prolific hymen, he called it. The first one was, a was called the Temple of Health. And he started to launch the celestial bed with a great, a, a fantastic teaser campaign that went on for months, rather longer than Graham had originally intended, in fact, because he started running into financial difficulty and the workmen sort of upped, up down tools and refused to go on with the work and, and it was all rather embarrassing. But I will move swiftly over that. And unfortunately, there are no um, images of the actual grand state celestial bed. There were various prototypes that Graham had had. He'd first experimented with the idea of electrifying a bed and, and discovered that, discovered that it, it, it aided conception when he was um, learning about electricity in Philadelphia before the American War of Independence. Um, and so there were, there were and, he, and in the first Temple of Health, he did have an electrical bed, but it was, it was in an upstairs room and it was only briefly referred to in his extensive publicity. So he, he, he obviously had plans to develop the idea further. And I, I think this is probably one of the, an image of one of the earlier beds because it doesn't really meet the description. Um, this isn't, I don't think this is an electrical bed at all. Um, it's, it's a fairly typical Lee Polonaise of the time. And um, I, I, it's not, you know, clearly not either electrified or electrifiable, but it's interesting because it's, um, it's got an inscription by James Graham, which says, Sacred to the beloved memory of my dearest and most noble friend, Miss Charlotte L., who died in London, March the 21st, 1783. Um, and the original owner has written underneath, I received the above print of the celestial couch or sofa from Dr. James Graham. The inscription is wrote by himself. Whether he means the death of the lady or only alludes to the loss of her virtue on the above couch, I cannot discover. <laughs> but um, luckily... We have Ting Hunkin's interpretation, which he did a few years ago, which is based on, on Graham's extremely long um, written description of the bed. And um, I, think, I do think Tim Hunkin gets a few things wrong, but it gives, a, it gives a rather good impression of what the whole thing was like. And I could describe it to you in every detail, but it would take my entire 45 allotted minutes. So I'll just, I'll just have to run through the... Um, the basics, which um, huge dome on the top with mirrors underneath, um, the statue of Hyman and Psyche um, carrying an electrical, flaming electrical uh, torch, were actually supposed to be lovingly entwined on the top of the dome. Um, and these were mu musical automata that, that played real instruments moving around the edge. Um, and another moving screen of automata, a, a, a sort of pastoral scene, um, is going on at the back with a, a, a real working clock, which would probably have recalled for some people, and um, this, this was the um, height of fashion for um, little timepieces called libertine watches, which um, looked perfectly respectable until you opened the back. And um, I, I will leave your um, imagination to um, picture the sort of tick-tocking movements that would have been seen at that point. Um, it was... It, it, I think people, people imagine, 
you know, if you, if you don't know much about the 18th century and you hear about the celestial bed, it's really, really hard to believe. But what you have to think about it is in the context of an unbelievable, unbelievably fertile time, both in terms of making and designing mechanical instruments. So there was a man called John Joseph Merlin, for example, who um, a few years after the celestial bed um, period designed... Um, an instrument called, oh, what was it called? I think it was called the Celestial Harp, actually. But a tourist said it sounded as though all the instruments of the orchestra were playing together. And, and this, you know, this was a machine played by one person. The glass harmonica, obviously, um, is a less mechanical um, example. But, but people were very interested in, in finding different ways of, of altering tone and, and, and so on in music. And, and so I think Hunkin has got it wrong about the... Um, the, the, the having that you know there were actually invisible musicians hidden under the bed. Um, the the organ pipes um, the organ pipes were supposed to be activated by the movements of the couple on the bed, so that they breathed out celestial sounds as as you know as, as the couple got more passionate. Um, oh, and in terms of the mechanical music, I mean, it was Mozart and and um, both both the Bachs were. Um, composing music for um, for clocks at that time as well, which you know went on for hours. So it, it was it was absolutely possible what what, what Graham describes. Um, the um, there were magnets underneath, which um, huge huge magnets, which. Again, um, Hunkin seems to think that it allowed the bed to float um, so that the couple were sort of floating on airily, but I don't think that was possible. I think actually the magnets were, probably had a rather more symbolic purpose. Aimant, the, the French word for magnet, um, obviously means loving. And, and in midwifery textbooks of, uh, I think, the 17th century, the, the womb was often pictured as a kind of giant magnet drawing sperm into it like so many iron filings. Um, but um, when it comes to the mechanics, um, if you can see over there on the left, um, Tim Hunkins drawn the, the way that the mattress tilted. It was on an inner frame, and the gentleman had a lever that he operated so that he could follow his lady downhill, was how Graham put it. And, and so this was clearly gravity-assisted conception, which I think still has its aficionados. Uh, the mattress itself was stuffed with hair from the tails of the finest English stallions. The sheets were silk and could be dyed to match your complexion to suit you best. Um, and, um, oh, I'll do, oh, sorry, I didn't show you the automata. There were the all. There are the automata. This is, um, th these, were, these were about 20 years before the bed, and the flute player um, actually appeared to breathe. The drummer drummed. Th these were designed by somebody who spent his life trying to design an automata that would actually bleed, but didn't actually, didn't quite manage it. He did, he did manage a defecating duck, which you can <laughs> see in the middle. <laughs> Um, but um, back, back to the celestial bed, the dome, I think, is one thing that's been sadly neglected up till now. And um, it was actually a reservoir for um, what he describes as ethereal odours and essences. Um, the priest, um, Graham, if you could sum up Graham's project, I think it was to find heaven on earth. And there were different ways that he went about this. He was looking, basically, for out-of-body experiences. Um, 
he thought that every couple should really have a celestial bed. He didn't want it to be confined to those people who could afford 50 pounds a night, which was the enormous sum that he was charging for it. And he hoped that, you know, even middling sorts would eventually have something like this in their house. But in the meantime, he offered some very useful marriage guidance, which people could take away in a book, Private Advice, so they could read it discreetly at home and, and discover, husbands and wives could discover how to make each other sweeter and more lovely in each other's eyes. And for Graham, what, what this was really about was, it was all about foreplay for him. And so the actual act of sex was, 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 was the culmination of an entire approach to a relationship, which was, which was very forward-thinking. Um, so he suggested in the, in private, in the private advice um, that husbands and wives really needed to talk to each other. They needed to communicate. Um, it, it, was, it was a new model for marriage, um, really, a, a sort of sentimental model um, based on companionship rather than, um, rather than simple um, issues to do with money and contracts, which, uh, which had been you know, the style for some time. Um, Graham suggested um, domestic music, little family concerts and especially singing together or, or in turn. Trifling as these may appear to some, I strongly recommend and still more strongly regular family worship and sentimental, philosophical and religious conversations and intercourses. For gentlemen, after the souls of an amiable couple have been softened, harmonized, illumined and filled with approving peace by duties and amusements so rational and delightful, when they return to an early bed, sober, serene and healthful, their bodies and souls rush sweetly together with the fullest, purest, intensest, and most celestial transports. And feeling themselves no longer inhabitants of this lower world, they wing their long, soft-waving way through the flowery fields of Elysium. Their souls float, undulating, melting, and finally launching forth upon oceans of ecstatic bliss. Um, so you can see this, this, this was the kind of out-of-body experience that Graham felt you could acquire through perfect physical health, ideal sexual union, the sublime powers of music. But he also had another trick up his sleeve, and that was by drawing on pneumatic chemistry. Almost as soon as Joseph Priestley had published his work on airs and gases, um, Priestley um, was, had, had identified oxygen, um, nitrous oxide, and various other, and various other scientists were working very much on that field at the time. Gas was, gases were a hugely popular subject, and it was called pneumatic chemistry. Um, and, and almost as soon as, as Priestley had, had published his work on it, which was very much designed to be um, experiments that anyone could replicate, he actually, he actually went into in, in pneumatic chemistry, having previously published on electricity, because um, acquiring the apparatus was, was cheaper than buying books to research a, a different kind of a book. Um, and... Um, and Graham had been using airs and gases, ether, oxygen, and probably nitrous oxide um, for, for a few years, including on Catherine Macaulay. At the first Temple of Health, um, he, was, he prominently displayed the apparatus um, for, for, for this science, um, a pneumatic trough like this, which was Priestley's, a eudiometer, which was a device that was thought to be able to um, measure the, the goodness of air. And in fact, Graham was known as an aerial doctor even before he was known as the electric doctor. Um, what's interesting is when you look at the comments of um, the guinea pigs of a more famous researcher, 
um, into the effects of pneumatic chemistry, the health, the, the medicinal possibilities for pneumatic chemistry, Thomas Beddoes and his assistant Humphrey Davy. Um, and um, one of these, he, he worked in uh, the medical, he, he found, Beddoes founded the Medical Pneumatic Institution in Bristol, um, where he he, he had guinea pigs in the form of Coleridge, of Southey, um, people who were very good at describing the effects of, um, of the experiments. Um, one person said, I felt like the sound of a harp. And another experienced sensations so delightful he could compare them to no others, except those he'd once felt listening to performance of the Messiah in Westminster. Um, another person described um, it as, as like climbing high mountains in Glamorganshire. And, um, and it's interesting that Graham, in fact, when he finally published his lecture on generation after um, being absolutely fed up with all the pirated editions that were going around, suggested that the lecture itself was best read very slowly, line by line, ideally either under the stars or under a meridian sun, but preferably up a high mountain. Um, so, um, so all these things came together, all these different ways of, of achieving out-of-body experiences came together in Graham. And, um, and they were certainly picked up on um, by, by his contemporaries. So um, when, when he had announced his positively last performance, um, a poetical epistle to the very celebrated Dr. Graham appeared, which included this verse. O delicate, respectful king of science, open my warmest spring of tickling sensibility. Thy firmest friendship let me prove brilliant, elastic, let me move transcendent in agility. These were, of course, the qualities of these newly discovered gases. I feel, I feel the enchanting touch, a rapture that's almost too much for human nerves to bear. Ah me, I pant, I faint, I die, but now I glow, burn, vivify. Vivify and range the realm of air. It was all extraordinarily contradictory. Graham stood in his temple of health, railing against luxury from what you could really describe as epicenter. Um, he was extraordinarily progressive in all sorts of ways um, that we would recognize today about female education, about slavery, about colonization. Probably the only thing that... Um, the only thing that doesn't ring true today would be his diatribes against masturbation, I'd say. Um, but, um, and he, 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 was, he was very hot on the evils of prostitution, and he squarely blamed the clients rather than the prostitutes themselves, who he saw the victims of the whole process. He, he absolutely made it clear that, um, that the, the celestial bed was for married couples only. But meanwhile, it was the prostitutes, among others, presumably, who took up his advice. So, for example, in Harris's list of Covent Garden ladies, which was um, essentially a, a guide for London sex tourists, um, a, a Miss Harriet Jones of Wapping was described as, um, as somebody who could, with lips and tongue, make a man of 60 young. And she boasted a beautiful black fringe bordering her Venetian mount. And, and she was said in this guidebook to pursue the Grahamitic method. Um, so it was, it, was, you know, it was clearly very, very well known. Um, though, as the guidebook put it, whether this was from a practical knowledge of its increase of pleasure, from motives of cleanliness, or as a certain preventative, we will not pretend to say. But we well know that it makes her the more desirable bedfellow, and after every stroke, gives fresh tone and vigor to the lately distended parts. <laughs> um, Graham's Temple of Health and his celestial bed brought him this sort of curious kind of infamy then. But it was an absolute financial disaster for him. Um, 
this was an age of speculation. The, the, the Adam brothers themselves, when they built the Adelphi, um, nearly went bankrupt, and they had, to have, they had to have a national lottery to save themselves. Life for everybody was a gamble. Somebody, um, Charles James Fox's Victorian biographer, describes society as one vast casino. And, and whether, you know, whether you're talking about aristocrats who were engaged in deep play night after night at the, at the gambling clubs in Pall Mall, or, or whether you're talking about um, medical entrepreneurs like, like Graham and Catafalto, um, you know, you had to take financial risks. And, and the prisons, in fact, were, there were twice as many um, debtors as felons filling the prisons. Um, so in spring 1784, um, Graham found himself in Newgate. Um, it, had, it had all gone bottom up, really. Um, the game is up, is, the, um, is what um, Dr. Pimpernel said in um, Mary Robinson's book, um, We'll Sing Them. And, um, of course, there were lots of jokes in the press about Graham's discharges, um, electrical, financial, and um, biological. And um, the Rambler's magazine, which was the pornographic rag that had, had launched itself by pirating um, Graham's lectures on generation in sort of um, issue after issue, um, claimed that when the bailiffs came to get Graham, he was in the middle of um, cranking up the electric bed for this infamous transvestite called the Chevalier Deon, who had recently come back to London from Paris and was now said to be standing for Middlesex. Uh, um, so Graham's Pall Mall landlord sold off all his apparatus and um, giveaway prices, and, um, and Graham was able to get out of prison. But then, of course, he needed to buy back the apparatus because without it, he couldn't go on making a living. Um, so what did he do? He turned to his earliest patron, one of his earliest patrons, um, Countess Spencer, the mother of the Duchess of Devonshire, um, who had actually been a huge support um, in the summer before the Temple of Health opened, um, um, raising subscriptions on the continent in Spa so that Graham could um, do his electrical, perform electrical operations to all these aristocratic audiences um, on, on various peasants that were plucked out from, from the crowd. Um, and, he'd got, and she'd gone on supporting Graham for some time. She, she had a, a, a boy, um, she was financing a boy under his care even when he opened the Temple of Hymen. Um, but by this time, um, things weren't looking so good. Um, Graham needed 100 pounds um, by 10 o'clock on Monday the 29th of March in order to save his life's work. But without it, he was going to lose possessions that had, had cost him literally thousands. And um, he had a wife and three children to support. So he wrote to Countess Spencer and um, he wrote with convincing and, and really rather desperate candor. God knows, he declared. I mean fairly, honestly, and even generously by the whole world. And whatever expenses and difficulties indulging a too eccentric and too expensive imagination has led me into, yet the health, the happiness, the elevation of the minds of my fellow creatures and strict honor and honesty to all mankind were at the top and bottom of my heart and were the chief objects which my whole soul ever panted to promote. I'm afraid Lady Spencer replied instantly. She was extremely methodical. And she filed his letter with a brief note, told him I could not do it, and added that the character he had acquired prevented me from doing anything for him by way of recommendation. I have to say I rather wept when I read that. Um, I'm going to cheat very slightly for my last image and go back to 83. Um, Graham did actually manage to keep going um, for some time. He, he went back to Edinburgh and he invented earth bathing 
and he founded a new church. Um, his search for heaven on earth led him away from science and towards a new religion that he founded, um, but also into messianic delusions. He, he was um, keen to find cures for both George III's madness and, and set off at one point for Portugal to try and um, cure um, Maria the Mad, the Queen of Portugal, who was, who was suffering similarly. Um, but, um, but meanwhile, I'm afraid, the celestial bed had become old hat, and pneumatic chemistry had led to a new craze, which was ballooning. So here is the aerostatic stage balloon, and um, its, um, uh, its travelers are, are many of the people who were associated with Graham in the past. Graham himself is on the bottom row, um, looking at his goddess of health. On the top row is Perdita with some of her demi-monde companions. Um, Charles James Fox is in the middle, and, and there's Catafelto with his black cat, and he's looking up at the moon, and and the, the, the cat is saying, um, yes, there are mice on the moon. There were lots of jokes at the time, actually, about um, uh, Joseph Banks being planning, planning to colonize the moon at his next venture. Um, and um, they're all about to ascend to the heavens with a, a tub of froth, which is marked vanity. Um, and the poem underneath describes all their crimes and social misdemeanors. Um, Who choose a journey to the moon may take it in our stage balloon, so said Monsieur in broken brogue, and up they mounted, whore and rogue. And I'm very happy to take questions now. very much for that, Lydia. That was really entertaining. Um, does anyone have any questions for Lydia? We don't have a roving mic, so if you could say your question quite loudly, then Lydia can repeat it back so everyone can hear what you said and then answer your question. Well, I just came across him in Roy Porter's, one of Roy Porter's books, and I I, I simply couldn't believe that nobody else had done it. And, um, and I, I thought he was so intriguing, and I thought he was such a wonderful way of, um, of introducing a huge number of different elements of 18th century life, because he, he, he's sort of like a prism, really. And, and, and he, you know, theatre and science and medicine and religion and so many different things, and, of course, sex and reproduction, all, all, you know, all come together in this, in this one incredibly intriguing man. And I, and I, and I also came to realize that he had, he'd actually had a terribly bad press because of this sort of, sort of cartoon image of him. And, and um, I thought it was time, you know, for him to rise again like a phoenix. <laughs> Shall I, shall I answer them in order? That might be easy. <laughs> might be easy. The fertility thing is actually really, really interesting because um, you wouldn't think it because it was so close to Malthus and all the fears about population. But actually, one of the things that really concerned Graham and one of the, the more political digressions that he took in, in his lecture on generation was, um, was to do with this, this actual fear that was, was quite generalized, that the population was declining. It was declining in numbers, and it was declining in, in strength. This also related rather complicatedly to different theories about, about reproduction, um, which I, I think I can't quite go into now. But, but, but generally speaking, and, and also related to 
um, to, to fashions at the time, which meant the men were, were looking generally more effeminate. With, you know, there, was a, there, was, there were anxieties about sort of demasculinization and so on. Um, if you think of all the, uh, the 1770s macaronis and fops. And so this all fed into, um, in, into Graham's um, desire, which you, you, you sort of got in the, I, I don't think I can flick right back to it, but um, the, the, the poem at the front um, suggests this idea that, that he was, it wasn't just about individuals, it was about creating a, a more populous and stronger and generally more manly nation of Britons, um, which, was, which, which was felt to be very important. But, but he was also appealing to um, the aristocratic, um, his aristocratic client's need for, for heirs, so you had to keep, you know, you had to produce a male heir to keep the money in the family, and this was terribly important. And and this was one of the things that he promised to do. And in fact, he um, he used to, he sort of did he joked a bit about um, about about sort of being the the, the the metaphorical father of of all these these um, little aristocrats running around London. And then that was um, that was rather misinterpreted in um, in various satirical pieces, as you can imagine. <laughs> It does to a certain extent, well, except, um, well, the, um, this, the, f the first patient that I mentioned, uh, Mary, Wils Mary McCauley, was, um, was one of the leading blue stockings, and, and Graham was clearly influenced by this milieu. And in fact, um, uh, in, in, in 83, he got his goddess of health. He wrote for his goddess of health these extraordinary lectures called the, it was called the, it's called the Blazing Star and I came across it in Walter Scott's library in Abbotsford. And it's actually an absolute diatribe against female conditioning. It's in favour of female education. Um, for him, female pleasure was incredibly important for sex. I didn't, I, I sort of hadn't, hadn't, didn't have time to stress that enough in the, in the lecture. And so and that's why I think that the, the, the portrait that Mary Robinson paints of him as being so misogynistic was actually quite unfair because he, he was actually, um, as, far as, as far as women's education and, and, and so on w went, I think he was actually very progressive on that front as far as, you know, in, in relative to the times. Well, the, the, the not directly. No. I mean, there were there were others. There were others in London around the time in the sort of Blake, um, Swedenborgian. You know, in fact, Richard Cosway, I think, was very interested in that. And, and interestingly, he took on the lease of um, Stromberg House and was said to have inherited the um, the celestial bed. The rumor went, and and the newspapers were very interested. He, he took a very long time to take down the. Um, the, the symbols that of Mercury and Venus that Graham had put on the facade of Schomburg House. So, um, so there, there are sort of connections and there are period connections, but, but there's nothing to show that it fed into him. He was very committed Christian, in fact. I'm sure you must have spent quite a bit of time on this when you researched your book. Uh, have you actually managed to find out where any of the bits of the work is going to end up? And are there any extant? 
Ah, no, there's absolutely nothing. And, and there was, I mean, when he went back to, even, even when he went to, back to Edinburgh, you know, he'd had to sell off an awful lot. And he had some apparatus. He took, he took some of it to Edinburgh and opened a new Temple of Health there. But um, the trouble with glass is it's so incredibly fragile. And there's actually kind of horribly little... Um, elect No, but it, it, the, 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 you know, the, the, the trail goes cold horribly soon, I'm afraid. Very disappointing, I know. <laughs> but there's a very good, you know, his description is so detailed that I'm sure if somebody could come up with, well, it wouldn't be £10,000 now, but if somebody could come up with the money, I'm sure it could be recreated. <laughs> No, he, he, was abs he was the most chaotic businessman on earth. And even if, you know, even if the records had survived, he was unlikely to have kept them in some ways. And, um, and also, I think it would be very hard to know what to believe of, um, of what he said from that point of view. So, so I can't say. But it, but it is true that each time, that in terms of the... I think he probably made more money from his evening promenades, the candlelit promenades and the lecturing and so on. It's certainly true that each time he was on the verge of closure... Um, enough people would kind of rally round and there'd suddenly be a wonderful new audience, for example, of soldiers and sailors back from fighting the, um, or failing to win the, the War of Independence in America. And, you know, and the newspapers would say, oh, it's wonderful entertainment for the troops, you know, now they're back and, and so on. So, so he, he kept it going for a surprisingly long time. Well, I have to say that um, when I gave a talk a few um, last month, there was um, um, a sex therapist in the audience who told me, <laughs> to my amazement, <laughs> that actually electricity is still used. I, I assume for um, you know to help pelvic floor muscles. Um, so they, it's not then they, they are being revived. I would say, um, ditto the tilting um, you know the tilting bed. I think um, I think that's a, that's one of those um, sort of common. Um, surprisingly common practices. Um, I, but I think in terms of being effective, I suspect that um, it was the psychology of them that worked and also the fact that he, you know, that he did no harm. You know, the, 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 the feel-good factor, I would say, was probably the thing that um, was most in his favour. Um, although he did, um, he did, he did um, sell, he did sell medicines that um, um, supposedly made your urine smell of violets. <laughs> and I, and I, right, anyway, I, I haven't. <laughs> well, the, if you think about London and its stinking sewers, Benjamin Franklin, I, you see, this, this, this is why it's never quite, I'm never quite sure how seriously to take things because Benjamin Franklin wrote a wonderful sort of semi-joking lecture saying that, um, or it was a letter to, a, um, to a, a European royal society saying that that actually a far more benefit than all the work of Priestley and, and so on and so forth would be if somebody could, could invent a way to stop people farting. <laughs> <laughs> Smell was a big thing. <laughs> well, I'm actually going to sneak in slightly with my own question. Um, I was talking to Lydia earlier. She mentioned there was actually a small connection between John Hunter and uh, Dr. Graham. I was wondering if you could briefly um, go yes, into that. I'll, 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 I'll elaborate quickly. on that. When, um, 
um, I'd, I'd stupidly, I'd completely forgotten about it until, um, until I arrived here. And, um, and then I suddenly remembered that um, when Charles Byrne, the Irish giant who, um, who, who I, I hear is, is still, um, his, his, the possession of him at the museum is still a matter of some controversy. When he arrived uh, alive and well in London in, um, in 1782, um, he, was, he was referred to in the papers as the surprising Irish giant, the tallest man in town. And, um, and Graham fanned newspaper speculation on the, the latest celebrity's love life and his oversized physical endowments by offering him a trial of the celestial bed. Um, it was politely rejected, I'm afraid, with the assurance that Byrne was a perfect stranger to the rites and mysteries of the goddess Venus. <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much indeed, Lydia. And thank you again. If you could just show uh, a I'd like to just remind everyone that our next talk in the series is going to be our last talk on the 9th of June, which is by the author Hallie Rubenhald, who's going to be talking about Lady Worsley's Whim, a tale of 18th century scandalous divorce, uh, with at least a menage of 27, which I think is quite impressive. And that's going to be the 9th of June. Uh, Lydia will be outside at the reception desk. She'll be selling and signing copies of her book, and she's happy to talk to you more. If you could just let us out uh, just ahead of you so we can just go and set that up and we hope to see some of you out there and thank you for coming again thank you very much for coming